Bible with you. Uh, the Pew Bible, I think, is still page 873. It's been a couple weeks we've been on that page. Matthew 19. One of the things about going through a book of Scripture is that you have to deal with all of it. Uh, this is a pretty heavy passage. There's a lot of stuff in here. There's a lot to go over. Um, so we're going to get to it. Tell me if you've ever heard this before. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish for as long as we continue to love each other. Is that how it goes? No? How about this one? For as long as our love shall last. Or my favorite, until our time together is over. These are real wedding vows that are becoming more and more popular because couples have just decided that marriage probably isn't going to work out and we shouldn't kid ourselves and think that it's going to be a lifetime commitment. You might think the world that we live in is going to hell. It doesn't surprise me that things are so bad, but that's actually pretty similar to the context that Jesus found himself in in the first century 2,000 years ago. So we're going to get kind of technical here for the first bit, but uh, bear with me. It all makes sense, I think. Uh, verse 1, Jesus, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there, and some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds, or some of your Bibles might say, for any cause. And that'll be important in a minute. So in the first century, um, people got divorced just as much as they did today. The Old Testament, the Jewish law, had two passages that talk about divorce. The first one is Exodus 21. You can turn there if you want to. I'm going to read it. Exodus 21, verse 10 is talking about a circumstance, a weird circumstance that doesn't really resonate with us today, but if there was a battle and you took captives and one of the women you took captive you fell in love with and you wanted to marry her, and then you decided later you wanted to marry a second wife, which Jesus is going to talk about that in a minute too, Moses writes that you can't deprive your first wife of her marital benefits. In verse 10, Moses says, if, you, if he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. So the law said that if you do not feed, clothe, or provide marital rights for your wife, she can leave you. She can divorce you because you have not kept your vows. The second verse is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, 1 says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeased to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a certificate of divorce, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Something indecent is specifically talking about sexual immorality. If, in this context, if a man finds out that his wife has been sexually unfaithful to him, he can divorce her. So these are the two main passages that the Jewish teachers referenced when they were talking about divorce in the time of Jesus. And they did what was called case law. 
case law, if you've been following the Supreme Court, they just did a bunch of stuff in the last couple of weeks. They work off of case law. A, 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 a case comes to them, and it's a very specific case, and nothing has ever happened like this before. And so they look back at other cases where similar things have happened, and they kind of try to figure out what the best answer to this specific question is based on precedent. That's case law. The other thing is statutory law, which is like if you go 30 and a 25, you've broken the law. There's a, there's a rule there. That's different. Most of the Old Testament law is case law. Things happen, circumstances take place, and then the legal teachers of Jesus' day, the rabbis would have said, okay, here's a new situation that's not covered in the law of Moses, so how can we take what we know about the law of Moses and interpret it so that we can do justice for this specific situation? So over hundreds and hundreds of years, they took this idea of Exodus 21, which says food, clothing, marital rights, and Deuteronomy 24, which says uh, sexual immorality, and says the, gr- the proper grounds for divorce are the deprivation of necessities, of care, of love, and sexual immorality. And so there were these four categories that you could legitimately divorce your spouse for not living up to their vows. A generation before Jesus, a rabbi shows up. His name is Hillel. He's super famous, super popular, and he does something interesting. He reads Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where it says, a man marries a woman, she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. He says, why did, why did Moses write something? He could have just wrote an indecency, finds an indecency in her, finds, something in, finds indecency about her, but he wrote something. He would have, the way he would have said it is, he, Moses wrote a cause of indecency. So if there's a cause of indecency, that that must be a separate thing than indecency itself. And if there's a cause, what could that cause be? Well, it must be any cause. And so a man could divorce his wife for sexual unfaithfulness, indecency, or any cause. And so this doctrine of divorce sprung up in in the generation before Jesus called the any cause Divorce, which basically said if a man didn't like the way his wife cooked, he could divorce her for any reason under the sun. He didn't have to prove that she had broken her wedding vows according to Exodus and a more literal reading of the passage in Deuteronomy. This rabbi, Hillel, was incredibly popular. This any cause divorce was incredibly popular. It was only available to men. Men could do it. Wives wives had to prove unfaithfulness in their husbands, but men could divorce their wives for any cause. But many wives actually preferred this method of divorce because if you were divorced for any cause, you were still eligible for what was called your marriage inheritance. Your husband probably had to pay you for an any cause divorce. Whereas if it was proven that you had had an affair or that you weren't um, living up to your other marital rights, that money could be forfeited. So everybody in this society, really liked this any cause divorce. There's an example of this in the Gospels. If you remember the story of Mary and Joseph, Mary becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know that. Joseph thinks that she has betrayed her wedding vows. They're they're engaged, but you have to have a divorce in their culture to be um, broken from an engagement. She has vowed herself to him, but gotten pregnant by, he thinks, another man. He has every right to call her out publicly for unfaithfulness, possibly have her stoned to death. 
but he loves her, he cares for her, so the Bible says he's going to put her away quietly. He's going to give her this any cause divorce and not bring up why he wants a divorce because he doesn't want her to be harmed. So this is an official um, understood way to get divorced in first century Israel. Not everybody agreed with it, but it was the popular view. So when Jesus meets up with these Pharisees, the Pharisees ask him a very specific question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The CSB says, on any grounds. Some of your Bibles might say, for any cause. And they're referencing this very specific view of how to interpret Deuteronomy chapter one. Can a man just say whatever he wants and divorce his wife? What do you think, Jesus? A controversial topic. Jesus doesn't really want to talk about this, though. Notice in verse 4, he doesn't answer the question. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says, no, no, you're starting in the wrong place. Let's not talk about divorce. Let's talk about what marriage is supposed to be. Jesus quotes Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, the story where God creates humanity and says, this is how God has set up the marriage relationship. He says, marriage is God's idea. And there's a lot of voices in our culture that, that say that you know, marriage is a human construct and that it's outdated and old-fashioned and not necessary. Jesus doesn't think that way. Jesus thinks that marriage is an institution that was designed by God in the very beginning of time. Jesus also says sex difference is part of what marriage is. In the beginning, he made them male and female. Now, as it seems like daily this becomes more and more unpopular. Those in the Christian church who hold to this view are becoming more and more uh, outsiders in our culture. But the truth is, this is the view that Jesus held. This is the view of the New Testament. And this is also the view of literally billions of Christians, Jews, Muslims, and many Hindus all around the world. So we're really not a minority if we hold to a traditionally orthodox view of male and female marriage. Jesus' enemies are not concerned about this. This is not an issue for them. But we are, in 21st century America, we are concerned about uh, this idea of who can get married and how it should be done. And, and so I want to take a, a second. It's not really the point of the passage, but I want to talk about this for a minute. The church's position on same-sex marriage is one of the biggest issues that we face today. And it's, if you want to read our doctrinal statement, it's, it's clearly spelled out what we believe. We believe the same thing that Christians have believed for 2,000 years, that marriage, just like Jesus says, is an institution created for one, one man and one woman. But before we just dust our hands off and move on, I want you guys to to think carefully about that. Because it's easy to think, depending on who your friends are, depending on who your coworkers are, depending on what news feeds you watch, 
that this idea is something that's, that's out there, it's out in the culture, it's liberal, it's weird. See, I know that to not be the case. I know that there are men and women all over our community, all over our nation, all over the world that are struggling to follow Jesus and don't know how to reconcile their thoughts and their desires and things that don't line up with this vision for marriage. I know that, and some of you know this of me because that's my story. From a very early age, I was someone in the church wrestling with this idea of same-sex attraction. And I grew up in a church where I was constantly told, sometimes when we were talking, talked about it in scripture, sometimes just off the cuff, that gay people are out there and God hates them and they're disgusting. And I believed that. So I knew that God hated me and I was disgusting for feeling a certain way and not knowing what to do about it. It took a long time to figure that out and overcome that. Because the thing is, we are all sexually broken people. I do not believe any of us are going to get out of this life unscathed by sexual sin, sexual brokenness. Whether it's in your thoughts or your actions or your attitudes or relationships gone wrong, there is something that is infected by sin in you in this area of your life. And so I would just urge us as we talk about this issue, as we get on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and have conversations with friends and family that we recognize sexual sin is sin, but it's experienced by people. And God loves people. If you're interested, there's a book called People to be Loved in our library. It's excellent. All about how Christians can interact with the LGBT community. What else does Jesus say here? Jesus says that marriage is a two-person relationship. Notice he says uh, in verse five, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. You know what's crazy? Jesus is quoting the Bible and he's adding stuff to it. The word two is not in Genesis chapter two. If you look back there, it will say, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. Because see, in his day, polygamy was a thing. It was what everybody did. If a man had means, he would take on a second wife or a third wife or whatever, however many he could afford. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. The marriage covenant is supposed to be a two-person covenant. And you may think like, well, yeah, we don't have that today. We don't have polygamy today. I don't know if you've ever heard of polyamory, but if you haven't, you will. This is the new frontier of sexual ethics in our culture where um, groups of three, four, two men, two women, two women, one man, two men, one woman, however you want to put it together, would say that they are in a committed relationship with one another. The rumblings of this movement are easy to find, and I, I think they are going to be a major concern for the church in the coming years. How, how do we explain this? How do we understand this? What does it mean for marriage if more than two people want to be a part of it? And we have to be prepared to have grace-filled, scripturally saturated answers. And Jesus says, no, no, marriage is meant for two. 
So they're no longer two, but one flesh. A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The word joined, you could translate that word glued. If you're into any kind of manufacturing, it could be like, you know, um, two solvents coming together and forming a new thing, uh, soldering a joint together, welding. These two things come together, and they're not two things anymore. They are one thing. Specifically, this is in reference to the act of of sexual union. This This is a powerful force in the life of a couple, and it is designed to connect two people together in powerful ways. It's, it's designed to connect bodies and minds and souls in ways that cannot be easily torn apart. And that glue is just meant for that relationship. That's why adultery is so damaging. That's why it, it, it hurts a marriage so badly. That's not the only thing. Pornography is also a force that breaks up the glue in a couple's marriage. And it's, it's dangerous and it's deadly. Jesus says it's this, you two are to be glued together. Don't let anything else get in between that. And, and I know I've talked, to, I've, I've talked to some of you. I know statistically many of us, especially us younger men and some of us younger women, have been ensnared by pornography. And, and if that's you, you, you have to get rid of it. You have to get free of it. If you're single, if you're married, it doesn't matter. Deal with it harshly. Jesus, don't, don't take Jesus literally, but the metaphor is cut your arm off, pluck your eye out. Jesus says take sin seriously. In order to get over the grip of pornography in my life, I'd, I've, I've had to tell people. You have to talk about it. You have to ask for accountability. You have to put protections in place because it will kill you. It will destroy your marriage. A man and his wife are supposed to be glued together as one. Don't let anything come in between that. Even your parents, Jesus says. (laughs) Don't put your parents in the middle of your marriage. Don't let them pry their way in. Don't invite them in. Your marriage is a new family with new traditions, new rhythms, new values. Learn from your parents. Take the good things from their marriage and take, learn from the bad things in their marriages. But don't let them lead your home. It's not their job. And he says, God put this together. No one should separate it. Now, he didn't say no one can separate it. We're going to get back to divorce here in a minute. But a marriage is a sacred institution that's put together by God and no one should separate it. Why then, verse seven, they asked him. They don't like this. They wanna get back to the topic at hand. Why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice, how, notice the words here. The Pharisees say, Moses commanded us to divorce our wives. 
And Jesus says, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. You see the difference there? See, the common teaching was if, if there is a breach of the marriage vows, you, the, 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 the husband, had to divorce his wife. This is why Joseph is so freaked out in his story of Joseph and Mary. He's like, she's done this bad thing. I can't marry her. I have to divorce her. That's the rules. But Jesus says, no, no, that's not the rules. That's the guidance. If you've ever read a a bottle of cleaner, it'll say something like, if you spray this in your eyes, this is what you need to do. Either, you know, go call poison control or flush them out. Or if you swallow this, drink a bunch of water or don't drink anything or whatever, depending on the substance. But you don't read that and go, well, it says I should swallow this. It says I should spray this in my eyes. No, it doesn't. It says if you happen to do that, here is some damage control for fixing it. Jesus says, you were never intended to be divorced. Marriage is supposed to be lifelong. But if it gets really, really bad, Moses set up some parameters for dealing with it. But you don't have to follow through on that. Remember, we just got done talking for two weeks about forgiveness. And he says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts. The only place that heart, the phrase hardness of heart shows up in the Old Testament in connection with divorce is in the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is writing down the words of Yahweh, and Yahweh is in the process of divorcing from Israel, divorcing from the people of Judah. God is the victim in a divorce. And he lists all of these things that Israel and Judah have done. And it's not just, well, you burnt the toast, you're out. It's years and years and years of unfaithfulness and rebellion and failure to live up to the covenant. And so Jesus says, divorce is not meant to be this easy thing. I'm tired of you, I want out. It's a last resort after continued broken vows and unrepentance and unfaithfulness. And then in verse 9, Jesus answers the question. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He says, this, this whole any cause divorce that everybody's so excited about where you just don't have to say to reason, there ha- there's no broken vows, you just want out. That's not scriptural. That's not how it's supposed to work. And he says, if you have that divorce, you're actually committing sexual sin because you're still married. Your divorce was unlawful, and you're cheating on your spouse. But here's an important thing to notice before we move on to this next section. This is really important for As we navigate this, because we're talking about people, right? We're talking about real men and women and real relationships. This whole conversation in Matthew doesn't talk anything about Exodus 21. Remember that passage about food and clothing and marital rights? How this is actually what our wedding vows are based on as they evolved over the years to love, to honor, to cherish. This is the passage that Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 7, which we're not going to have time to look at. But he focuses primarily on a couple loving each other sacrificially and well. 
And he says, if, if your spouse abandons you, then, then they've failed in living up to their vows and you are free from that marriage. So when we read that Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, there's, that you, you, you commit adultery, he's not making an exhaustive pronouncement about, about divorce. And we know that because Paul has other reasons for divorce. But this is used so poorly in the church when we don't think carefully about what we're reading. David Instone Brewer, who has a great book on divorce and remarriage, tells a story in his book of a a Christian woman who is living in a physically and emotionally and verbally abusive relationship for years. She goes over to a girlfriend's house. Her husband doesn't want her to be there. He goes and finds her, drags her out of the house, throws her to the ground, points a shotgun barrel to her forehead and pulls the trigger. But the gun jams. And she goes to her church And the leadership of her church says, I'm sorry, he hasn't cheated on you, so you can't leave him. Friends, that's insane. (laughs) He has broken every possible marriage vow, and it seems as though he has no intention of changing. And the heart of God and the words of God's law would say, this woman is free from this, this abuse, this neglect. Now, again, Jesus just got done talking about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the ideal. When there's there's unfaithfulness, when there's neglect, even when there's abuse, there can be forgiveness. There can be restoration. And that's something that a victimized spouse needs to walk through in the community of God's people. But sometimes, hard-heartedness leads to divorce. And God is our example. God is divorced from Israel. Now, the story in Jeremiah doesn't end there. He he gets them back. But then the disciples speak up. His disciples said to him, "If if the relationship with a man with his wife is like that, it's better not to marry. You mean if I have to have a reason to get divorced, I I should probably just not get married. (laughs) And it feels like they're saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but Jesus takes it seriously. He responded, if anyone can accept this saying, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made that way by men, and there are eunuchs who have been have made themselves that way because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who is able to accept it should accept it. This is probably the most controversial thing that Jesus said that day. More than anything else that he has talked about with regard to divorce and remarriage, he says, you don't have to get married. And this would have been mind-blowing. As far as we know, Jesus was disagreeing with every other religious authority of his day. Every single, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Qumran community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, everybody said, good Jewish people have to get married. It's the law. And Jesus said, no, no, they don't. Some people are not supposed to get married. Some people are called to get married by God. Some people were born a certain way and they're not gonna get married because of it. Some people are, are, in this day, mutilated by other people, and they can't get married. See, 
the Bible like radically reshapes this view of marriage in, in say, by saying that singleness is a gift. Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians. The things that a single person can accomplish for God are in many ways superior to the things that the married person can accomplish. Paul says, because the married person has all those vows that they made. They have to love and honor and cherish and provide food and clothing and marital rights and all of these things, but the single person isn't entangled by any of that. So single people, don't waste your singleness. See it as a gift. Even if, even if marriage is in your future, and statistically it is, but if you're single today, don't feel like you're somehow less of a Christian because you haven't found that perfect spouse that's going to complete you because there isn't one and they won't. But <laughs> uh, use your singleness. Use what you've been given to fully serve God in this season of your life. And most of us that are married will tell you that, and we didn't figure it out until after we got married man, this marriage thing is hard. I wish I had more free time to serve Jesus. I got bills. And then Matthew transitions here, and I had a hard time at first figuring out what, what this little section was about. He says, then children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After placing his hands on them, he went on from there. I don't know if Matthew's intention was this, but I'm gonna go this direction. The disciples, a few verses earlier say, if I'm stuck in this marriage, it's better to not be married. If I can't get out of it. And then just a few verses later, they go like, these children, they're annoying. So I want to talk to you men, us men. The calling of the husband is to give everything that he has short of what he's giving to the Lord, to his wife and his children. When you, when you make those promises in front of your friends and family, you are creating the most important relationship with any other human on the planet. And then as children come out of the love between you, your job is to love them, to care for them, to raise them up. Think about the last stand-up comedy special you watched. We watch stand-up comedy and comedians say true things in a funny way and we laugh at them because they are true. And I, I can almost guarantee you that comedian said, marriage is awful and children are annoying. And we laugh because, well, marriage is hard. And children are kind of annoying sometimes. But husbands, this is our job. This is what we signed up for. We signed up for the work that it takes to figure out who this woman is and love them with everything that we have and serve them and honor them and prefer them more than ourselves. 
And then we said to these little lives that we are bringing into the world, it's my responsibility to make sure you grow up to know who Jesus is. And I fail at both of those things so often. I don't love my wife well. I see my children as a nuisance. And that's something that I have to repent from and apologize to my family for continually. Why is this important? Well, Paul says that Jesus is our example in this. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. So that's not a high bar, is it? Men, be like Jesus. But in some mystical way, our marriages are an example, not the only example, but they are an example of what it looks like for Christ to love his people, for Jesus to love his church. And Jesus gives himself for his church. He dies for his church. He lays down his life for his church. And I realize by saying that, men, many of you, and myself included, just, just feel bad. Does that make you feel bad? Jesus is awesome, and you suck, you guys. Feel bad. But that's not the gospel, is it? Right? Jesus is great. You're dismissed. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is great, and Jesus forgives us when we failed. His blood pays for the selfishness and the busyness and the laziness in our hearts. And his spirit is given to us as a gift so men, we can be men like him with his spirit inside of us. We can rise to the challenge that he has given us, not because we're awesome, but because he's awesome. And he gives us the ability to lead our homes well. So this passage, marriage, singleness, pornography, homosexuality, polyamory, abuse, neglect, divorce. If all of this sounds hopelessly impossible to do well, it's, it's because it is. We look out in the world around us and they're living as best as they can and it's a cesspool of craziness. And unfortunately, it's kind of that way in the church too. The only thing that will help us live up to the standards that Jesus gives us for what marriage and family is supposed to look like is the love of Christ and the changed life that comes through walking with Jesus. And so if, if you hear this morning this message of what marriage and family is supposed to look at like and you walk out those doors and you go, I'm going to leave this place and do better, you've missed it. What we need to be saying is I'm going to leave this place and fall more deeply in love with Jesus. I'm going to make him priority of my life. I'm going to allow him to speak to me through his word, through prayer, through the community of the saints. I'm going to develop practices that encourage 
my love with God. We're all a part of broken family relationships of some kind or another. I think everybody could admit that. Many of us know what kind of broken sexual relationships we have in our past or our present. And the only thing that is going to provide a solution for that, that lasts, the only thing that's going to provide healing and growth and uh, clarity and forgiveness and maybe even reconciliation is the blood of Christ. And so we're going to we're going to sing some more about how much God loves us. We're going to take communion. Jesus said, remember what I did for you. Remember the blood shed. Remember the body broken. Remember how I laid down my life for you. And then walk away from that table and do the same. So there's going to be, feel free to come get communion. There's going to be opportunity to use the prayer rugs if you want to kneel and pray. We're going to sing. Um, Feel free to sit or stand. I know that there's a lot of like weird Jewish legal history stuff that I just threw at you. And I know everything that I just said hits everybody in a little bit different place. So just take a few minutes and let the Spirit speak to what's going on in your world because only He really knows what's going on in your heart, in your life, in your circumstances. Just listen for His voice and what He would say to you in this moment. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.